and welcome to this Throwback Thursday edition of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, where we remember the past and choose to repeat it. A version of this episode was originally published on August 2nd, 2011, and we've chosen it because it was titled The Manufactured Debt Crisis, again, back in 2011, and it could have just as easily been produced today with only a few of the names changed. Sources include The Young Turks, Jim Hightower, The Daily Show, The Rachel Maddow Show, Counterspin, Media Matters, The Bugle, Common Sense, and On the Media. Democrats and Republicans are having fights over should we raise the debt ceiling or not. I've told you all along, uh, Republicans are bluffing. Wall Street has already told them you're going to raise the debt ceiling and you're going to shut up about it. Okay? And so Republicans are pretending, oh, no, 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 we got a massive trillions of dollars worth of cuts. Now, Democrats know they're pretending. Tim Geithner even said it to the press. Hey, I talked to the bankers then. They already gave these guys their marching orders, and we know that they're going to give in on that, right? But they're all playing a game on us to screw all of us over so they can cut spending and cut taxes, too, to make the rich even richer, right? To give you a sense that that's absolute certainty, on Face the Nation, Senator Mitch McConnell said, if we can't do something really significant about the debt ceiling, then we'll probably end up with a very short-term proposal over a few months, and we'll be back having the same discussion in the fall. Meaning, hey, if we really push it and we get close to that debt ceiling, don't worry about it. Of course we'll raise it, and then we'll keep going on with this soap opera that's nonsense. Okay? Uh, now, the reason Democrats play along, of course, is that they are the good cops and the good cop, bad cop that they're playing on the American middle class. So you go to uh, Senator Graham. He's on one of these programs as well. He's on Meet the Press. And he's going to talk, finally, with the good news. They're going to talk about revenue. Okay, fantastic. Let's check it out. Clip 8. No one on the Republican side is going to vote to raise taxes, but I think many of us would look at flattening the tax code, do away with deductions and exemptions, and take that revenue to help pay off the debt. So Uh, you're not opposed to some some uh, moves that could actually create some new revenue? Yeah, one way to do that is to do away with ethanol subsidy and a bunch of other subsidies that go to a few people, take that money back into the federal treasury and pay off the debt. That doesn't raise taxes. That takes special interest groups, uh, uh, their gravy train away and helps pay off the debt. That's one way to help pay off the debt. Now, there you get excited. That sounds good, man. There's a Republican saying, hey, let's take away deductions and exemptions. Don't get excited. Here comes the huge caveats, Okay. Uh, let's go to the second clip where he starts talking about Social Security. Interesting. There's no way on God's green earth you're going to balance the budget until you put entitlements on the table like Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill. David, what did they do? They adjusted the age slowly but surely from 65 to 67. We need to means test benefits. Everybody on this program could in the future give up some of their benefits for Social Security to keep it solvent. And you got to do the same thing on Medicare. Slowly but surely adjust the age and upper income Americans should pay more when it comes to Medicare. But interesting that your, your party is not with every, you on that. The party, I mean, Paul Ryan didn't even well, include Social Security in his budget plan. And these are still areas you say, well, we have to act like grownups. Nobody's really willing to go in and touch these things. Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill were grown-ups. They came up with a formula to save Social Security that slowly but surely adjusted the age. People over 55 are unaffected, but I think young Americans believe Social Security and Medicare are going to fail if we don't do something. This is all a game they're playing on you. Now, David Gregory says, well, the Republicans didn't even propose uh, raising Social Security retirement age. And the Democrats didn't propose it either. President Obama backed away from it. Fantastic. Guess what happened? 
Well, at the end of last week, the AARP, the people who are supposed to look out for senior citizens the most, that's their whole job, right? Came out and said we should raise the retirement age. Why? Because Washington has agreed that they're going to raise the retirement age, okay? So they're going to do it by hook or by crook, and it's always by crook, by the way. And so they get the ARP to provide cover for the Republicans and the Democrats. Why do they need the political cover? Because it is horribly unpopular. 84% of the country says do not touch Social Security under any circumstances. I don't care if you want to balance the budget. I don't care about anything. Do not touch it. Don't cut my benefits. What's Lindsey Graham saying? All of a sudden, well, we got to raise the retirement age. You know, we already raised it to 67. Those geniuses, Reagan and O'Neill, did that. Tip O'Neill, the... You know, now we got to raise it to 69. Now, I told you from day one how long I've been telling they're going to raise the retirement age. Why? Because it doesn't take a rocket scientist. All you got to do is read the papers. Simpson and Bowles did this commission, commissioned by Obama, that the Republicans loved, stacked with 14 conservatives out of 18 members. And Simpson and Bowles came out and said, yeah, we're going to raise the retirement age to 69. The rest of it has been a tap dance to get to that point by all these frauds, the Republicans and the Democrats. So now that's a Republican. On the Democratic side, Mark Warner on these programs, and he said, hey, look, if we're going to raise the debt ceiling, we got to do this uh, budget deal. Well, what are we going to do? We're going to do uh, spending cuts and uh, tax increases. He does, they say, revenue increases, right? I say, okay, great. At least you're looking at both sides. Everybody pays their fair share, right? Hmm. Well, here comes the monkey wrench, right? First of all, he says spending has to be three times. Spending cuts has to be three times as much as what we raise revenue. First of all, how's that fair? Why is that fair? Why is a Democrat proposing that? By the way, same exact thing President Obama proposed. 75% has to come out of the middle class and the poor, and that 25% theoretically is supposed to come out of raising taxes on the rich. But here comes the second curveball, which is the most devastating. Mark Warner, so-called Democrat, supposed Democrat from Virginia, who is no such thing, certainly no progressive. Well, maybe he is a Democrat because they're not really progressives. Comes out and says, oh, by the way, uh, yeah, we will get rid of some of those deductions and exemptions that Graham referred to. You see, because they all agree this is all nonsense, right? Uh, they all know what conclusion they want to get to. They all know how they want to trick us and how they want to rob us. So Mark Warner says, we'll get rid of some of those. But in return, we will lower taxes. <laughs> so what happened to raising taxes? What happened? No, no, no. They're going to lower taxes. Now, understand how you're going to continue to get robbed by that. Remember, 75% was already coming out of your hide, right? Now, the other 25% that is in revenue increases, well, when they take away your home mortgage deduction, well, you don't have that anymore, and that hits the middle class pretty hard. And there's a lot of exemptions that apply to the middle class, some to the rich, but a lot to the middle class. They take those away. And then in return, what do they do? They lower the corporate tax rate. So corporations win again. And now Mark Warner is talking about lowering the rate for the top bracket. So the rich actually get richer. This is a so-called democratic proposal. Don't believe them, man. Don't believe them. They're coming to rob you blind. So in the end, what happens? The middle class and the poor pay 100% of this so-called deficit reduction, and the rich pay almost none of it. Why? It's because the rich are the ones that write the laws. They bought Mark Warner. They bought the Democrats. They bought Lindsey Graham. They bought the Republicans. So in the end, you think that they're going to pay? No, they're going to get their money's worth from these slimy politicians in Washington that they bought off.
No, shout Republican leaders at President Obama, like pouty two-year-olds. We won't raise the government's statutory debt limit in order to avoid a national default, they cry. Four whiny GOP congressional leaders, John Boehner and Eric Cantor in the House, Mitch McConnell and John Kyle in the Senate, insist that it'd be the height of irresponsibility to raise America's debt ceiling without first slashing spending on programs for the poor and middle class, while simultaneously protecting big oil and hedge fund billionaires from any increase in their paltry tax rates. What the four pious partisans don't say is that their pose of resolute fiscal responsibility is an entirely new shtick for them, and they're hoping that you won't remember the Bush years. George W. had strutted into office promising to eliminate the $6 trillion federal debt in 10 years. Instead, he rushed America into his budget-sucking Iraq escapade, handed unwarranted tax cuts to corporations and the super-rich, and oversaw a devil-may-care deregulation of Wall Street that caused our economy to crash. To cover these achievements, Bush had to get Congress to jack up the federal debt ceiling, not once, but five times in eight years. Far from eliminating the national debt, he expanded it by $4 trillion. Guess who was side-by-side with him on this joyride? Boehner, Cantor, McConnell, and Kyle, that's who. Not only did they gleefully vote again and again for Bush's war, tax giveaways to the rich, and coddling of Wall Street greed, but also to keep raising the debt limit. Kyle voted for four of Bush's five debt ceiling increases, while Boehner, Cantor, and McConnell had a perfect five-for-five record. This is Jim Hightower saying, these crybabies aren't against debt, they're against Obama. And the games they're playing with the national budget are putting party politics over country. The nation clearly is in dire straits with regards to the debt ceiling crisis. For more on its possible impact, we're joined by Daily Show senior economist Jason Jones. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Jason, if the experts uh, are to be believed, inaction on the debt ceiling and deficit reduction would be catastrophic. Mm-hmm. But the negotiations have thus far seemingly brought out the worst in our political and pundit class. That's right. And if the conversation continues this way, we could very well hit the national bullshit ceiling. <laughs> Well, that that would be catastrophic. That's right. And as you know, John, the national bullshit ceiling, or to put it in layman's terms, the amount of bullshit people are actually willing to take has slowly been creeping up. Where, where are we at now with the bullshit ceiling right now? Right now, Americans have pretty much headed up to about here with this bullshit. <laughs> but by the end of next month, it seems likely we'll have had it up to here. <laughs> Bullshit-wise. And the last time I checked, we don't have poo gills. And, and what would the ramification of that be? Well, as you know, historically, the balance in our country has always been money talks and bullshit walks. But this recent surge has so bloated bullshit, it is no longer ambulatory. <laughs> William Jennings Bryan must be rolling over in his grave. William Jennings Bryan? What does he have to do with this? Well, as you know, he was one of the earliest crusaders against shitflation. <laughs> Hence his famous... His famous 1896 speech, you will not crucify mankind upon a cross of poop. As you know, Jennings never worked blue. No, I know. 
clearly a couple of history majors laughed at that. Anyway, <laughs> I got to say, I'm, I'm very impressed. You really know your bullshit. Well, got a B.A. and B.S. Well, <laughs> where'd you go to school? Brown? Brown? Very mature. Very mature. John, you know very well I went to Anal Roberts University. <laughs> So, it's a good school. Go fighting fishers. Mm -hmm. You know, we're close to hitting the bullshit ceiling. Mm. Why should we be worried? John, if we reach the point where the amount of bullshit exceeds the amount of actual things, we will effectively default on reality. It's already started happening. If you want an abortion, you go to Planned Parenthood, and that's well over 90% of what Planned Parenthood does. He did call his office trying to ask uh, uh, what he was talking about there. And uh, it had, I, you know what, I just want to give it to you verbatim here. It says his remark was not intended to be a factual statement. Did you see that? When John Kyle got called on his bullshit, his response was to get angry at people for expecting something other than bullshit. <laughs> But why, Jason, why can't we just, in this time of crisis, why can't we just raise the bullshit ceiling? John, this isn't some arbitrary figure like the debt ceiling. This is real. <laughs> and if we can't cut the bullshit, then there's only one solution. We as a nation need to start replacing shit with farts from our butt. <laughs> Come on, Jason. That's what? Factual assessments of reality-based truths. Or farts, as they're called. Hey, we need politicians and journalists willing to call bullshit on the bullshit. But you said the farts <laughs> would come from our butt. Yes, bold, uncompromising truth-telling. But why? What did you... Oh, farts from our butt. John, grow up. Jason Jones, everybody. Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. One week from today, next Tuesday, is officially deadline day in Washington, the final day for Republicans in Congress and President Obama to strike a deal on the debt ceiling and avoid sending the country into a self-imposed default for the first time in our history. At this hour last night, the prospect of reaching that sort of deal took the latest turn in a journey that's had a whole lot of turns. A primetime address from the president um, aimed at, shall we say, pressuring Republicans into finally reaching some sort of agreement. But if you were tuning in last night, as I was, hoping that you would see some grown-ups really close to compromise, that's not at all what you saw. Instead, it was President Obama and Speaker John Boehner looking like they were as far apart as they've ever been in this now months-long fight. And today... Just after their dueling primetime speeches, President Obama made it clear that he would not accept just any compromise when he officially threatened to veto the plan that's favored right now by John Boehner and House Republican leaders. Late tonight, Speaker Boehner's office announced that he's going to be rewriting that plan because it doesn't achieve as much in savings as he originally claimed it did. Now, 
Given the sort of dire nature of where these talks stand right now, there is still at least one remedy that's been bouncing around Washington these days that suggests President Obama doesn't actually need John Boehner at all, that he can just raise the debt ceiling on his own without John Boehner and without House Republicans. For weeks now, the White House and president have said they don't intend to take this sort of dramatic unilateral action. But this policy is one that's enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. It's part of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which was one of three amendments passed in the years immediately following the Civil War. And interestingly enough, President Obama cited this Civil War error during his primetime speech last night. We have put to the test time and again the proposition at the heart of our founding that out of many, we are one. We've engaged in fierce and passionate debates about the issues of the day. But from slavery to war, from civil liberties to questions of economic justice, we have tried to live by the words that Jefferson once wrote. Every man cannot have his way in all things. Without this mutual disposition, we are disjointed individuals, but not a society. I used to live in Chicago. And given how often this former state senator from Illinois has asked us to think of him in the mold of Abraham Lincoln, President Obama specifically name-checking slavery in his speech last night invites us to ask, what might we learn from that moment in American history? Right now, we keep hearing over and over again from Republicans in Congress that Washington is broken. And while there may be some merit to that, there's really only been one time in our history when Washington was truly broken, as in literally broken in half. And there are some actual lessons to be learned from the Civil War that can just as easily be applied today. For one thing, you want to know what the country amassed a lot of during the Civil War? debt. The U.S. government went deep into the red during the Civil War. The Union had to borrow and spend all sorts of money that it didn't have in order to fight and win that war. Moral of the story? Debt itself is not inherently evil. Debt matters, but preservation of the country, economically or otherwise, matters a whole lot more. Lincoln was prepared to find a way to pay the bills so that this nation would not perish from the earth. Another lesson from then that could just as easily apply today, countries at war need to raise revenue in order to pay for those wars. One of the enormous advantages the North had over the South during the Civil War, one of the reasons they were ultimately able to prevail is because they had more money. And where did they get that money? You guessed it, tax revenues. Abraham Lincoln imposed the country's first federal income tax in 1861 in order to help pay for the war effort. <laughs> a novel sort of concept, right? New taxes to pay for a new war? The fact that we haven't imposed any new taxes over the past decade means that we are essentially using a pre-19th century model to pay for the wars that we've decided to fight. But perhaps more important than anything else, the Civil War was the moment in our history when we established the very notion of the full faith and credit of the United States government. It was the adoption of this aforementioned 14th Amendment to the Constitution, the one that states that the U.S. debt shall not be questioned. After the Civil War, after racking up all of this debt, the U.S. Congress essentially declared to the entire country and to the world that we are good for it. 
that the United States is a good credit risk for our lenders because we honor our debts. That's the moment at which the government said, by constitutional requirement, if we the people owe you, we'll pay you back. We just will. And so to risk that credit at this moment is to ask us to go back to a pre-Lincoln moment in our republic when our word wasn't necessarily our bond. Seven days from right now, or sooner, that word may take a major hit. Drawing upon the lessons of the Civil War serves as just, not just a reminder about our monetary policy and the usefulness of debt, but the difference between a real crisis and, frankly, a manufactured one. In this moment, as bad as things are, the fact is we could solve our problems tomorrow, heck, by midnight tonight. Congress could simply say, in what is not even an act of courage, just an act of regular governing, hey, we're going to raise the debt ceiling today. And we're going to address these other issues, important issues, in the way that politicians always do, which is we'll fight it out. And whoever's policies the American people like best, they'll vote for that party. Instead of that, what we have is people seceding from the talks. We have people who are willing to launch the country into a potential economic crisis when there need not be one at all. So is Washington broken? Maybe, but it's not the result of any real crisis like we faced before. It's the result of a totally manufactured one. The corporate media often obsess over moving the political discussion to the so-called center, which in practical terms is often well to the right of public opinion. The ongoing debate over the debt ceiling is no different. Forget about winning the future, Barack Obama wants to win the center. That's what the Washington Post told readers on July 25th under the headline, Obama, Big Deal on Debt, A Gamble to Win the Center. The article explained that Obama was, quote, making Republicans an offer they couldn't refuse in exchange for trillions of dollars in cuts, including to Medicare and Social Security, Republicans would have to agree to a fraction of that in increased tax revenue, close quote. Reporter Zachary Goldfarb explained that, quote, Obama's political advisors have long believed that securing such an agreement would provide an enormous boost for his 2012 campaign, close quote, because, it is explained, it would improve the president's standing among political independents. Well, this may be what the White House insiders are saying, but a newspaper has a responsibility to point out that what they are saying is contradicted by reality. The reality that every poll tells the same story. People across the political spectrum do not support cuts to programs like Social Security and Medicare. But in the corporate media, a wildly unpopular policy is heralded as centrist. More on this muddled view of centrism. Any clear-eyed observer of the Washington debt debate would acknowledge that Republican intransigence in the face of repeated compromises offered by Democrats, to the point that, as American prospects Jamil Bowie and others have noted, the original proposal put forward by Republican House Speaker John Boehner is now the template for the Democratic plan. But elite media have a fetish for partisan balance, even when it doesn't fit events. It's hard to overstate media's faithfulness to this distorted presentation. Here's host Christiane Amanpour on ABC's This Week on July 24th. 
This week, with tempers flaring, the rhetoric has boiled over. Exhibit A, the war of words between two Florida Congress members, Republican Alan West and Democrat Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Wasserman Schultz fired the first shot on the House floor, criticizing West for supporting a debt deal that would cut Medicare. West's response, a furious email to his colleague when he said, you are the most vile, unprofessional and despicable member of the U.S. House of Representatives. You've proven repeatedly that you are not a lady and therefore shall not be afforded due respect from me. So how does Washington move past this partisan rancor? That, again, was Christian Amanpour. Excuse me? Wasserman Schultz criticized West's support for a particular bill. She didn't say anything outrageous, which is why ABC didn't air a clip or even quote from her speech, the one where she fired the first shot in this war of words. West's intemperate you-are-not-a-lady response would suggest he's the one with the problem here. But you can't say it that way, just like you're not supposed to say that Republicans are refusing to support Obama's very Republican budget offers. With the deadline to raise the debt ceiling approaching, Fox News and the right-wing media are coming up with creative ways to paint the president in a negative light. Exhibit A, the metaphor. That's the problem with being president. You love raising the debt ceiling. It's like a wife and her credit cards. Americans (laughs) have to be the husband that takes the credit card and breaks it up. Call him the parental president. But can he force-feed the GOP a diet of more spending? Though lacking in literary flair, Rush Limbaugh's rhetoric on this topic is arguably more insidious. Exhibit B, the conspiracy theory. Now he has said he wants to change it. He doesn't, He doesn't, of course, say he wants to destroy it. He just says he wants to change it. Okay, so I've said he wants to destroy it. He said he wants to change it. If there is a collapse or a default, it's something that he wants and has planned. But the key thing is here, this isn't the government wanting to borrow money to buy things in the future. This is the government wanting to borrow money to pay for things that they've already bought. <laughs> it's like it's like a teenager going up to their parents and saying, please, can I borrow $20 for a new car that I've just bought? And the parents saying, wait, hold on, you've already bought the car. And... Didn't it cost more than $20? And the teenager saying, you're quite right, it did. Can I have $35,000, please? (laughs) (laughs) The problem is that all government borrowing in America has to be approved under the Constitution by Congress. Now, because there's no real... The strange thing is there's no particular need to have a debt ceiling other than to force massive arguments on a semi-regular basis. (laughs) Most other countries don't have a debt ceiling. They just have an inbuilt sense of what they can and can't afford. (laughs) Well, I think recent history suggests that they don't have that. Yeah, that is true. That is true. I could, I could almost sense the Greeks waking up at the, in the afternoon over there saying, what? That's not true. Anyway, please keep it down. I'm napping. Again. America! America! For the two and a half thousandth year in a row. The, uh, the overall borrowing cap was actually first introduced by Congress in 1917 to make it simpler for the government to finance its efforts in World War One, And that was a war worth throwing some money at, Andy. <laughs> 
You got a lot of bang for your buck back then. There was no <laughs> way Congress was going to feel shortchanged. Yeah. Also, you saved a lot on all those pensions that you didn't have to pay out afterwards as well. <laughs> That's it's true. It was a win-win and massive loss. Bottom uh, line, bottom line, it made sense. Trench warfare <laughs> made sound economic sense from a long-term financial picture. But how many governments would have the courage to say that these days? Yeah, yeah? you're right. Yeah. Well, I guess, John, this goes back a long way, basically to uh, 1791, when George Washington slapped one war of independence on his nation's credit card for the now bargain price of $75 million. And I guess he probably didn't think at that point that his inspirational fight today, pay tomorrow scheme would still be quite so avidly pursued in the early 21st (laughs) century. But I think um, a lot of it comes down to the problems of democratic government, John, because essentially the arts of democratic government is to spend vast amounts of money on being seen to be doing stuff, Mm -hmm. financed either by spending money you don't have or cutting back spending on actually doing anything. And therefore, (laughs) governments basically won't economise significantly because the less they spend, the less they can appear to be doing, and therefore the less reason they have to exist. But I guess we do need to keep things in perspective, John, because, let's be honest, the Black Death was worse. Um, You know, we might have tough Mm -hmm. times at the moment, but... um, at least we can it's sneeze true. without having to cancel all of next week's appointments. <laughs> that's true, Andy. Yeah. Well, that's that's the first thing that's not been depressing that I've heard regarding commentary <laughs> around this story. There were warnings uh, of <laughs> about things like this uh, happening. Um, let me quote from Abraham Lincoln, the professional ex-president and two-time hat wearer of the year, who said this in 1864. He said, I see in the near future a crisis approaching that unnerves me and causes me to tremble for the safety of my country. Corporations have been enthroned, an era of corruption in high places will follow, and the money power of the country will endeavour to prolong its reign by working upon the prejudices of the people until the wealth is aggregated in a few hands and the republic is destroyed. I feel at this moment more anxiety for the safety of my country than ever before, even in the midst of war. Oh my so, god! Can't say this kind of crept up on us like the once in a oh millennium, my. once in a century credit tsunami that um, that uh, was it. Greenspan oh. described it as Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all property and their chi- until their children wake up homeless on the continent their forefathers conquered. Oh. So, <laughs> There you go. The, oh, here's boy. another one. The national budget must be balanced. The public debt must be reduced. The arrogance of the authorities must be moderated and controlled. Payments to foreign governments must be reduced if the nation doesn't want to go bankrupt. So this warning, do you know how long ago that was said, John? How long? 55 BC by Cicero. <laughs> no f***ing have been ignoring that advice for over 2,000 years now, John. <laughs> And there's no sign that we're going to start gnawing it. <laughs> America has raised its debt ceiling multiple times, and usually it's nothing more than a formality to get it done. Under Ronald Reagan, the Republican-styled greatest fiscal president in the history of the galaxy, the <laughs> debt limit was raised 18 times. And the real shitstorm at the centre of this volcano of pain is that Congress also gets to set the government's spending commitments and tax-raising powers, which means that any administration can be required to spend more than it earns while being prevented from borrowing any money to make up the difference. Essentially, Congress can hand the President a shit sandwich and just sit back and watch him have to eat it. Come on, Mr President, we're not leaving until that plate is clean. (laughs) 
Well, it seems no one's prepared to back down on these things, John. It's pretty much like the Titanic, which went down with the captain proudly announcing, well, at least I did not compromise my principles. Boats <laughs> should go in straight lines. You cannot show weakness to an iceberg. It will punish you. I've made my point, and if I had to get very wet to do so... Well, so be it. And this looks like being another triumph of disruption for the tea party. Although, at this rate, the only tea they'll be able to afford to drink in America will be economy tea bags cut with dried mouse droppings, and they'll be dunking biscuits made of disused commemorative Michael Dukakis coasters into it. <laughs> this, here, if you can stomach it, here are some of the details of each side. Each side at the moment have detailed proposals over the extent and manner in which the other side can go f*** themselves. But detailed economic plans supported cohesively by either party have proved quite hard to come by. Republicans have proposed um, uh, raising the debt ceiling by just enough to fund the government for another six to eight months to allow more time for negotiations, which... Completely coincidentally, I'm sure, would be around the run-up to the 2012 presidential <laughs> elections. And Timothy Geithner responded to that suggestion by doing another of his special magic tricks. This one involved making all the fingers on his hands disappear but one. And some Democrats have backed a longer extension, but that will basically involve both sides arguing the distance with which everyone should aim to kick the can down the road. The truth is, this cannot go on indefinitely, and both sides are getting involved in a f- dangerous piece of brinksmanship here. This is like a game of financial chicken. The Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, accused the Democrats of playing with fire. And he said that while flicking a lit match at a 1970s sofa. The problem with the game of political chicken that the Democrats and Republicans play with each other is they're really hardly playing with each other. They're really playing with us. I'll let this train hit this poor, unsuspecting American voter if you don't do what I want. I mean, you know, they're very uh, willing to throw us on the table during the gambling. Um, But this latest endeavor, which is about as unimportant as American politics gets. Understand something, folks. This may be your first will threaten uh, to shut down the government uh, occurrence in your political memory, but I've lived through it before. And those of us who remember what it's like understand that there's a certain truism about politics. When the crisis is something that's manufactured by the very people who have the tools to get us out of the crisis at any time, if they want to, you don't have to worry about it. The crises you need to worry about are the ones that get no attention paid to them and that even if a miracle happened tomorrow and everyone agreed that they needed to be solved and they got down to work, they would have years of tough, hard work ahead of them to do anything about it. Our worst problems are not so easily fixed. The easily fixed ones go away remarkably quickly. All these Republicans and Democrats would have to do is decide, "Uh uh-oh, and In five minutes, the checks could be rolling again, which is what's going to happen at some point. And it might even be a couple of days after the deadline passes. It won't matter. These people have too much power over fixing the problem and too many reasons to want to do it as the game of chicken becomes more real. The part of the story that was interesting to me has nothing to do with the actual debt ceiling fiasco, this partisan created entity. Um, It has to do with the reaction of one particular person. I like to call him the best argument for term limits in the American Senate um, and how he thought of a 
cool way to, you know, avoid the Republicans getting blamed for any of this. The person I'm talking about is Senator Mitch McConnell from Kentucky. And what he basically came up with was an idea to sort of have a vote on not raising the debt ceiling, and then the president could veto that, and it wouldn't look like the Republicans had anything to do with raising the debt ceiling. Brilliant, right? And there are quotes out there in the news media from other Republicans who, although they may have been a little uncomfortable with the slippery nature of the maneuvers, thought it was a good idea. And as we get closer and closer to this mythical, self-imposed, you know, politician-created deadline, um, they seem more and more willing to adopt an idea that's transparently a shell game because it's a cool, useful shell game. Gets them out of a jam, and who cares? Um, There's a certain implied aspect to this McConnell move, and that's that the voters aren't watching anyway, so who cares? The part that bothered me so much about what Mitch McConnell did is not that he did it, Because all through American history, these kinds of people have done backroom deals like this. It's that he did it right in front of us. He held news conferences. He did interviews. He told us all he was doing it. You don't tell people you're going to do a shell game. You don't tell the very people you want to make sure don't know about it, right? What this shows you is that Mitch McConnell knows that the people who are going to really be the deciding factor in the election next year are not the people who are paying attention to any media outlet where this maneuver of his would be exposed. That's wild when you think about it. And this is only the latest. I mean, both parties have been doing this for a while where you turn around and go, hey, you know, this is open. Why are you doing this so openly? You're only doing it this openly, these these maneuverings which you used to be ashamed of. You do them behind closed doors so no one found out. And you'd punish a leaker who exposed something like that. We do it right in front of you now. You know why? Because if you're watching, you're not the target audience. The people who are watching and paying attention are not the ones deciding elections. The ones seeing campaign ads are the ones who are deciding elections. More on that in a second. Um... First, a little bit more on the McConnell move, just because it's so stunning. This is a New York Times um, piece on the subject, and uh, it highlights the absolute almost flipping off those of us who are watching level of this kind of political shenanigans that both parties play and that during more, you know, fat and happy times, maybe we could get away with. Maybe in the 1990s, you can threaten to shut down the government. No big deal. Our situation right now has much more, you know, chance of something disastrous happening we have a lot less room for you know mistakes today than back then but we're playing the same games we would have played as though everything was just fine oh this is (laughs) this is just a game this is how we do it in washington dc no big deal i mean that's what they're really like folks but that's not what you get here's what the um new york times talks about with mcconnell this is from a july 13th 2011 edition of the paper uh the story's by carl hulse And from the middle of the piece, talking about Mitch McConnell and his plan to get the Republican, as the story says, fingerprints off of this debt ceiling problem, should anything go wrong. Quote, McConnell was still pushing his plan that would allow a debt limit increase to clear Congress without Republican fingerprints and without the guaranteed cuts many in his party are demanding. He would establish an elaborate process where Congress would vote to disapprove instead of approve a debt limit request, allowing the president to raise the debt ceiling via a successful veto of the disapproval if it came to that. 
The story continues. Despite resistance from conservatives and the initial unease many lawmakers expressed at such a slippery approach, the McConnell gambit was gaining credence as the best escape hatch, end quote. The story then goes on to point out that the Senate Democrats and the president, while it may not be their favorite thing, they're okay with that, too. This is how, I mean, it doesn't matter that it's a trick on the American people. Both sides are okay with it. Especially as we get closer to this mythical deadline, the story continues, quote, Some of McConnell's colleagues were coming around to it, meaning McConnell's slippery move, as the reality of a possible default began to sink in, quote, I strongly support Senator McConnell's efforts to avoid a default on our nation's debt and the last case emergency proposal he outlined yesterday to ensure that Republicans aren't unduly blamed for failure to raise the debt ceiling, said Senator John McCain, Republican from Arizona. McCain used to be a guy, by the way, remember folks we called a maverick and you thought of him as a ramrod straight stand up guy. He's in on this BS, too. And BS is exactly what it is. As a matter of fact, um, Mitch McConnell's going on conservative talk radio programs straight up saying this is all about the next election from later on in the New York Times piece, quote, recounting how the 1995 government shutdown helped Bill Clinton win reelection the following year. McConnell said any impasse that drives down the nation's credit rating and leads to government checks being delayed could have the same result for Obama, quote, he will say Republicans are making the economy worse, McConnell said in an interview with the conservative radio show host Laura Ingram. It is an argument that he could have a good chance of winning, and all of a sudden we have co-ownership of the economy. That's a very bad position going into the election. End quote. I'm sorry, folks. I know it's a little bit utopian, but, you know, you wonder if these people can't have a statesmanship moment now. When could they have one? I mean, the kind of people we have in D.C. now representing us from both parties would fight during World War II. I mean, there is no moment that is so dire and so important and so threatening to our children's future that we won't suspend this sort of politics for. And what's more, everyone, I mean, they're all okay with this maneuver, including Democrats with this maneuver that's a scam. It's a sneaky way to avoid looking like you caused the whole debt ceiling thing when, let's be honest, the Republicans are the ones who said, listen, we have this debt ceiling coming and we won't budge unless you make all these cuts. And then, you know, then you won't be able to spend. By the way, let's realize that the Republicans are not just screwing over um, liberals and Democrats by, you know, pawning off the responsibility. They're screwing the Tea Party folks. They're screwing all those people who, you know, they basically managed to get some of their agenda in the ears, maybe pockets of some Republican legislators. And now when it comes to it, they've got a sneaky way of sort of, you know, backstabbing them. And while liberals may enjoy the schadenfreude of watching the backstabbing occur, at the same time, what's really disgusting is that they're totally open about these kinds of maneuvers, confident in the thought that in one year we will have forgotten it or even more confident that the majority of people who are going to decide the election in one year never saw it in the first place because they weren't watching because they don't watch politics because they're uninformed by choice or otherwise (laughs) 
Yes, the clock is ticking down to Tuesday when apparently the U.S. government may default on the interest it owes to U.S. bondholders if Congress fails to raise the debt ceiling. President Obama and House Speaker John Boehner engaged in dueling debt speeches last Monday night, each asserting that the other guy's party was to blame for putting the country in peril. Much of the coverage gave the speeches equal weight, suggesting both arguments were of equal veracity, but were they? I asked Lori Robertson, the managing editor at factcheck.org, that question. She said it was a matter of opinion. Then I asked her what she saw as the most egregious misstatement of the evening. Maybe I would say Boehner said that Obama wants a blank check today, Mm -hmm. just as he did six months ago. You know, it's true. Six months ago, Obama did want to raise the debt ceiling without cutting spending. But the president has now offered spending cuts. His press secretary had said somewhere between $1.5 trillion and $1.7 trillion over 10 years. So that's not seeking a blank check. Obama said that raising the debt ceiling was routine. You didn't challenge that, but... Yeah, he's right. Since the 1950s, Congress has always passed it. Every president has signed it. That's true. But this debt ceiling increase is the largest in history. So that may not be seen as routine. That's kind of along the lines of Boehner saying that last week the House had passed a plan with bipartisan support. Technically true, but misleading. Both Republicans and Democrats voted for the Cut, Cap and Balance Act in the House, but only five out of 193 Democrats voted in favor of it. Who's to blame for the crisis? It takes two to create an impasse, so both parties are to blame here for failing to come to an agreement. Is it true, though, that most of the compromise has been made by the president? Well, I mean, I think that's a matter of opinion. And Explain to me how that's a matter of opinion. Obama has been willing to cut a huge chunk of the money going out for a smaller percentage of money coming in. The only thing that the Republicans have supported is cutting the money going out, right? Um, yeah, I guess I guess that that's correct. Um, you know, it's hard for us to say, oh, somebody's blocking this more than the other. We're you know we're really we're not privy to these meetings either. I didn't mean to back you against the wall, but I have to say, if you guys aren't going to be unmealy mouthed about this, then who will be? Well, it's not that we're being mealy-mouthed. I mean, we've just say constantly in our stories that we don't take an opinion one way or the other. You know, a lot of people, particularly during the presidential campaigns, will ask us, well, who lies more? And can't you give me a ranking on, you know, who's the most truthful politician? And first off, we don't want to look like we're endorsing someone, so we don't want to do that. But we're going to tell you what we found. And if we found it to be horribly misleading, maybe you didn't, but we're going to lay it out there and readers are going to have to make those decisions for themselves. Lori, thank you very much. Thank you. Lori Robertson is managing editor at factcheck.org. In a recent New York Times column about the coverage of the debt ceiling crisis, Paul Krugman was not reluctant to call out the press for failing to communicate what he saw as the dangerous intransigence of the Republican position. He wrote, quote, What all this means is that there is no penalty for extremism, no way for most voters who get their information on the fly rather than doing careful study of the issues to understand 
understand what's really going on. Ryan Chittam addressed the would-be objective reporter's conundrum in a recent post on CJR.org. We do have a problem with dealing with extreme positions. Sometimes we just ignore them, and other times when they clearly have an impact, we just don't know how to tell our readers that this is crazy, you know, that people are willing to sink the credit of the United States government. So are you saying it's all the Republicans' fault? No, I'm not saying that at all. Harry Reid, he could have raised the debt ceiling when Democrats had control of Congress. He wanted the Republicans to share the political blame for it. That was a political calculation that backfired pretty spectacularly, and they bear responsibility for that for playing politics. But the closer you get to D-Day, the bigger the chance that it will spiral out of control. And I think that's what's happened here. The Democrats miscalculated, and the Republican leadership has too. But the responsibility there is not equal. When you're talking about making a political calculation eight months ago versus eight days out, they're, they're two different stories. You know, it just makes anyone who goes down this road such an easy target for accusations of liberal bias, what do you say to people who know they're going to walk down that road? Our highest obligation is to find out the truth and and to tell it regardless of the consequences. If we don't do that, then we're not doing our jobs. The press has a real aversion to being accused of ideological bias or bias of any sort. You know, we're kind of above the fray. We're just going where the facts lead us. I think the problem there is that it's easier to say he said, she said, rather than determining whether one side is telling the truth and one side is not. It's much harder to do that. It takes much more time. Right now you work for the Columbia Journalism Review. You used to be a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Right. Could you really report the way that you say people ought to report when you were a reporter for the journal? And I don't even mean the journal under Murdoch. No, I I don't think that this is something that the pre-Murdoch Journal was excluded from at all. Uh, This is the culture of American journalism, and the journal is very much a part of that. This is a cultural problem. It's not something that British journalism, as much as we've criticized them over the past few weeks, has. That's because people expect British journalism to be, at least in part, ideological. And one reason why the Brits admire American journalism is that, supposedly, it's not, at least the good stuff. That's the dilemma, right? How do you split the difference between being milquetoast and not willing to call people out and being ideological? These are facts. I think you just have to report the context. You don't have to spell it out and say, you know, Republicans are at fault. That that doesn't have to be your lead. Thanks for listening to another throwback episode plucked from the archives to give you context for today. For more like this, check the feed as this is a weekly feature of the show that's in addition to all of our new episodes. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave a voicemail or text at 202-999-3991 or email me to j at bestofleft.com. These episodes are remastered and produced by Dion Clark, Aaron Clayton, and myself. We also produce funny and informative bonus episodes 
episodes along with Amanda Hoffman as thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships to the show. If you get value out of the show, we'd appreciate your support at bestofleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, with new episodes coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.